Father, thank you for this beautiful church. Uh, these, my brothers and sisters, your children are a treasure. Thank you for the privilege that is ours to join our voices together, to sing, to come in limping, but to walk out stronger than before. And Father, this morning, as we come to your word, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive. Uh, God, don't let us miss what you're saying to us today, uh, but Father, fill us to overflowing as we study your word and take it in. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you please open to the book of 1 Peter? We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 today. And if you're new with us, you may not have brought a Bible with you. That's okay. We have one for you in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're using that black pew Bible, uh, you'll find our passage on page 1075. That's page 1075 in the Pew Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Uh, as Pastor Steve mentioned a little bit ago, our 75th anniversary is next Sunday. Very excited about it. I hope you're planning on joining with us and celebrating with us. Um, uh, we have been in a sermon series these past few weeks walking through the commitments that we make to each other in our membership covenant. Uh, membership covenant may seem like uh, maybe an odd concept if you're not familiar with it, but it might be helpful to think about our membership covenant in the same way we think about wedding vows. Uh, these are commitments that we've made to God and to each other, and today we're going to think about commitments numbers five and six, which have to do with our personal holiness. And so I want you to see these commitments that we make as church members to each other, and they read like this. We will press on together toward maturity in holiness and godliness, resisting sin and worldly lusts and growing in Christ-like character through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We will strive to maintain times of personal Bible reading and prayer. We will bring up children under our care in the nurture and training of the Lord, and we will honor marriage as a sacred covenant between a man and a woman. Imagine with me that I give you an assignment. I need you to do something for me. Here's what I need you to do. Your assignment is I need you to write a letter to a church. And this church is small. The church is young in terms of the maturity of its faith. It's young in the faith. Uh, that church is isolated from other churches, not a lot of fellowship or, or places to connect with other churches around it, uh, but one of the key characteristics of this church that you're writing a letter to is that this church is experiencing serious persecution. What would you write in that letter? Your job is to write a letter of encouragement to a persecuted, small, isolated, young-in-the-faith church. What are you going to write? Now, you, you might write something like um, that, that focuses on God's presence with them in their suffering. That's true, and that would be good encouragement. Or you, you might write something that encourages them to endure, to persevere with what they're going through. But this hypothetical was the real-life situation in which Peter, the Apostle Peter, sat down and wrote this letter, 1 Peter. He sits down and writes this letter to a small church, a young church, an isolated church, a persecuted church. And do you know what he says to them within the first few sentences of his letter 
to this persecuted church, here's what Peter tells them, be holy. His concern with them in their suffering, in their hardship, is their holiness. Do you think about holiness in that way? How often do you pray for your own personal holiness? How often do you pray for the holiness of the people in your life? Or when you're thinking about your home church, how often do you pray for us and pray, God, make us a holy people, a holy church? We'll often pray and ask God to fix our problems, to fix problems for the people we love, fix problems in our church perhaps. But how often do we say, God, make us holy as you are holy. It's sometimes true that people who love the grace of God don't always think about God's demands for holiness. And when we leave holiness as a back burner issue, it can cause problems for people of faith. It causes problems especially for churches. When we don't pursue holiness, we are, we're living less like God and more like not God, whatever that is. And for us to carry the banner of Christ and yet not live like Him, think like Him, speak like Him in a world that needs Him can pose real problems for the church of Jesus Christ. God has called us to holiness by the very virtue of our salvation. To be saved is to be called out, is to be holy. So holiness from the Christian perspective is both a status and a process. It's the status given to those who are saved by God, but it's also the process by which we are becoming more and more like Christ and less like our sinful selves. A helpful illustration uh, to understand holiness, just to make sure we're on the same page, would be these bowls. Dog bowl, salad bowl. Dog bowl, people bowl. You don't want to eat a salad out of the dog bowl. It, no matter how much you love dogs, no matter how much you let your own dog lick you on the mouth with its nasty tongue, no matter how much you love animals, you don't want to eat your salad out of the dog bowl. You want to eat it out of the salad bowl. And why is that? Because the salad bowl is set apart for this purpose. It's for the salads. This is for the dogs. This can get yucky and gross and whatever, but this is for the people. It's set apart. This idea is it's holy. Now, we think of holiness as, as belonging in the place of ritual, the place of the sacred, and, and there's truth in that, but we practice holiness to a lesser degree in our everyday lives when we separate dishes that pets eat out of versus dishes that people eat out of. This is the holy set-apart dish, and so you are holy and set apart by God for His purposes. By the very nature of your salvation, you are called out, set apart. You are His, you are holy, and becoming more and more holy. You're no worldly human. You're no cultural human. You are God's child set apart for His purpose. And this call to holiness is the heartbeat of the passage that we're studying this morning. So my purpose in preaching this passage is to inspire you to strive for holiness in your daily living. That's what Peter puts in front of us in this brief paragraph. Peter challenges us to pursue holiness in two broad areas of our lives. And I want you to hear his call from 1 Peter chapter 1. 
Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 13. Peter writes this, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. This brief passage is a call to holiness. It's a call to holiness in light of the incredible salvation that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. He opens the letter by describing how beautiful this salvation is, a salvation of grace by faith. And because we're saved that way, since we're saved that way, therefore, be holy as God is holy. And so Peter instructs us in two broad areas of our lives He calls us to holiness in our thinking and in our conduct. And let's look first at Peter's instructions for holy thinking. His first instruction to us is that holiness is a mind shaped by Christ. If you and I are going to be holy people, it's going to happen first in our minds. If you look at verse 13 in our English translations, it, it can look like there's as many as three different commands related to the way we think. Look at verse 13. It says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, that could be the first command. Be sober-minded, that could be the second command. And set your hope completely, that would be the third command, on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in our English translations, it can look like there's as many as three different commands, but in the Greek, there's actually only one command. The one and only command in verse 13 is the command to set your hope completely. That's the command, that's the charge. And then the other two command-looking phrases are actually participles, which means these are the ways we fulfill the command. The command, set your hope completely on the grace to be shown to you at the revelation of Christ. How do we do that? With a mind ready for action, being sober-minded. So let's look first at the command in verse 13. Peter commands us this way, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, he's, he's writing to persecuted Christians. They are actively in the midst of this suffering and hardship. And so if we were being critical of Peter, we might say, well, why would he tell them this? It's as if he's telling them to just... Think about heaven and don't worry about what you're going through today. But that's not at all what's happening here. He's not suggesting that Christians escape the hardships of today by living in a future fantasy land. But rather, he's encouraging the church to think about this current day, the hard day, in light of Christ's future return and and our certain salvation. When he says to set your hope on the grace of to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ, that phrase, grace at the revelation of Christ, it's Peter's way of saying your salvation or the reward for your faith in Christ. Put your hope completely on what Christ has accomplished for you and holds for you. So when persecution strikes or when the circumstances are against you or when you are hard-pressed on every side, let your thoughts be shaped by the certainty of your future with Christ. Don't let your thoughts be ruled by fear 
or panic or desperation. Don't think that Christ has left you or forgotten you. Don't give up. But remember that you belong to Christ and he does not let you go. And so we're to set our hope completely on the certainty of Christ's salvation work on our behalf. What is hope? Specifically, what is Christian hope? Now, if you're new to South Shore Baptist Church, you might not know that the worshipers in our church carry with them a ready definition of Christian hope. It's something that we've talked about often. So if you were to ask any worshiper in our church, what is Christian hope? Here's how they might answer you. They might say, Christian hope is not wishful thinking. It's not optimistic thinking. But Christian hope is confidence that God keeps his promises. That's how we've come to understand hope in our church. Hope is not a wish that maybe things will get better. It's not just painting on a smiley face in the midst of sadness. It, it is confidence that what God has said, God will do, that he keeps his promises. So our hope is not set completely on our ability to overcome. And our hope is not set completely on even our circumstances turning in our favor. Our hope is set completely on the eternal truth that we are loved by Christ, saved by Christ, held by Christ forever. Can I just tell you that we don't get to this hope easily. The church that Peter was writing to is facing real hardship. And so when you read these words, maybe you are the one dealing with a faith-fracturing situation. And so the mindset that Peter describes is not necessarily something that comes with the flip of a switch, but it comes with steady, ongoing, day-after-day trust in Jesus Christ. It's daily waking up and reminding ourselves, my hope is not in the, 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 the stability of my situation. My hope is not in the resolution of my conflict. My hope is in Christ who holds me. He keeps his promises and he's going to carry me all the way through. So what does hope look like in everyday life? Well, that's what Peter tells us. We accomplish this hope in two different ways in verse 13. First of all, he tells us we, have our, we accomplish this hope by having our minds ready for action. That's the first line of verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action. Now, your translation, unless you're reading out of the same translation I am, your translation almost certainly reads different on that first line. It's a great line. It's fantastic. Let me show you how other translations of the Bible treat this line. If you have an English Standard Version, it reads, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Or New International Version, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. New King James, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. New Living Translation, So prepare your minds for action. New King James is the most literal translation of what Peter writes in the Greek. Gird up the loins of your mind. Other translations are taking this idiom, this figure of speech, and they're translating it into language that's understandable. They're giving us the meaning of the idiom, not the idiom itself. But we would do well 
to bring back this phrase, gird up the loins of your mind, to make sure we understand what it means. What's it talking about here? Gird up the loins of your mind. It, It comes from the ancient Near East, of course. It's the practice of gathering up long robes around your waist to get ready for work or for action. Um, I, I have a traditional Ugandan uh, robe at my home that I, I put on yesterday and practiced this with. It was not a sight that was fitting for a church audience. So just imagine with me, ancient Near East, uh, a, a man wears a long robe. It goes down uh, towards his ankles. And that's good for walking to the market. That's good for going to worship. That's good for any number of settings. But you can't run in that. You, you can't spring into action. So here's what you would do. The, the lower half of that robe, the loins of your robe, you would gather them up when it's time for action. So you would, you would gather it up to your waist. Uh, underneath your rear end, you would pull the excess from the back to the front. And then you take the excess and you pull it between your legs to the back, creating like a pair of shorts. And then depending on how much fabric you had, you could either separate it and tie it around front, or you could tuck it into uh, your belt. You're girding up. You're, You're gathering up this lower section, the loins of your robe, and you're getting ready for action. You're, you're, you're ready to jump into the fray. You're ready to go on the attack. You're ready to go to work, whatever it is. And so th- this is the figure of speech. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind ready for action. Now, my daughter Emma helped me think about it in modern language yesterday. She said it's like saying, uh, roll up the sleeves of your mind. That's a word picture we can get on board with. We understand that. If you're if you're getting ready to box or slap fight or do the dishes or whatever the thing is, you're going to roll up your sleeves and get ready to get to work. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready for action. How do I set my hope completely on Christ? I cultivate a mind that's ready for action. Now, that doesn't mean ready for warfare against people. It, it means this. It, it means that I'm ready to act holy in every situation put in front of me. I want to act in a way consistent with the character of Christ in me. Whether I'm persecuted or whether I'm at ease, I want a mind that's ready for holy action. The other thing Peter tells us to do here is to be sober-minded. So with your mind ready for action, also be sober-minded. The word sober-minded originally was used in opposition to drunkenness, right? Don't be drunk, but be sober-minded. But Peter and Paul use this word to describe a mind that is alert, spiritually alert, spiritually well-balanced and clear. Uh, This is not a a reference to alcohol intake at this point. This is about being clear-minded in the persecution moment, in the hardship, in the chaos, in the fear. That's where we want to be sober-minded. It's as if Peter is telling us that the cares of this life And even the pressures of suffering can intoxicate the Christian and distract our focus just as wine might do. So the need of the hour is clear judgment and a mind that is prepared to resist anything that would deflect our hope in Christ. So so what does it mean to think holy thoughts? We might say, well, that means not thinking bad thoughts 
or immoral thoughts. And that's certainly true. There's an aspect of holy thinking that looks like that. Jesus teaches us that clearly. But in this instance, Peter calls us to holy thinking that is confident in Christ, ready for action, and clear at all times. That's what holy thinking is. Not just avoiding bad thoughts, but setting our hope, our confidence completely on Christ. Now, this is an important and vital teaching for all Christian people. Regardless of your station of life, how many candles are on your birthday cake, this is for all Christian people. But there's one group in particular that I think this is especially important for, and that's our teenagers. Listen up, teens. In, in your schools, in your media consumption, there is a daily battle for your mind. And that's not new. Every generation of teenagers has been confronted with a world of changing values. But what is unique in a way that you can't appreciate it because you're immersed in it, what is unique is the intensity of the battle that you are facing compared to what my generation faced and my parents faced. It's of a different intensity. You are continually bombarded with messages that are pulling you away from the beauty of Jesus. They are messages that seem to be authoritative, but they truly have no authority. They only have volume. And they are messages that, that seem to be moral, but they truly have no moral foundation. They only have mass opinion. You know that if you choose to truly follow Jesus, you are choosing to face real difficulty, real pushback, real criticism. And look, it takes serious courage to believe what the Bible says about salvation being by faith in Christ alone. And it takes real courage to believe what the Bible says about sexuality or about marriage or about any number of issues in the face of the roaring opposition of your peers and so many others in authority over you. And this is why you have to get your mind ready you got to be ready mentally to stand for Christ no matter the cost, and it will be costly. I don't envy you. If I were, if I were speaking at a youth retreat or, or a youth camp, I would put us in 1 Peter. This is written for today's teenager. Young in the faith, isolated, needing courage, facing persecution. This is you today. And Peter says to you, Put your hope completely on Jesus Christ. If you're going to respond to your critics in the humility and the compassion of Jesus, then brothers and sisters, you've got to be sober-minded. You've got to be clear-thinking and balanced in your response. You have to remember, have a spiritual maturity beyond your years, that your critics are not your enemies. According to Jesus, you're blessed when they insult you for his name. And so your critics are actually your benefactors. They need to experience the love of Christ from you. Nearly everything your culture tells you about God, about salvation, about sexuality, about gender, about marriage is deeply flawed. It is not compassionate. It is not tolerant. It is not loving. 
And this world will attempt to devour you when you oppose it. So get your mind ready. Get your thinking clear. Set your hope totally on Christ so you can endure with joy all the way through. And you can. Why must you read your word? Why must you be in prayer? Why must you position yourself to be discipled by other mature believers so you can get your mind ready to endure the critics and to love them all the way to the cross? Peter is telling us that holiness is a mind shaped by Christ. And he goes next to another arena of our living. He started with the arena of our mind, and next he moves to the arena of our conduct. Holiness is conduct shaped by Christ. Verses 14 to 16 are all about this, the way we live. So look at what Peter says in verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it's written, be holy because I am holy. Peter begins his instructions for holy conduct, holy living, by calling us obedient children. I love that line. Don't skip over it. If if we are children, do you know what that means? It means we're part of a family. We belong to a, a family of faith. Not... Yes, we belong to the universal church, but I love the local expression of our faith family. We belong to a place where our names are known and we know others' names and we walk through life together as we seek to honor Christ. We're obedient children, members of this family. That, this family language is reflected in our membership covenant that I read to you just a moment ago. Our commitment on holiness says this. It says, we will press on together toward maturity and holiness. This is not some loner's activity. Holiness is a corporate pursuit. We're going to press on together toward maturity and holiness. We're obedient children, and obedience is a central characteristic of the Christian faith. You see, the good news of the gospel is not only that salvation is free, but also we are submitting our lives to Jesus as Lord. And to submit to Him as Lord means that we're going to walk in obedience to His Word. So Peter tells us that as obedient children, we're not to be conformed to the desires of our former ignorance. That language should sound really familiar, especially if you were with us last week. We heard similar language in Ephesians chapter 4 from Paul. And when we heard that from Paul last week, I pointed us back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where we, from Paul, also hear the similar language there as well. By faith in Christ, we've died to our old selves, and now our new life is lived by the life of Christ himself. The old self continues to woo us, though. That that old self doesn't die easily, even though we are marked by Christ and saved by Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, still the old self woos us with sin and self-reliance. And so instead of relying on uh, these ignorant ways of living, these previous ways of living, Peter tells us, be holy in all your conduct. Be holy in your conduct. He, He doesn't call us to be holy in our rituals, though we should be holy in our worshiping and in our rituals. But 
He focuses on our conduct. He takes the practice of holiness out of the sanctuary and he moves it into the sphere of real life. So holiness is not just practiced in our worship, but in our daily dealings with people. We're to live among people as those who belong to a holy God. We've been called by Him and set apart from our old way of life. We can't pretend to be holy in our worship and then be profane in our living. And just in case we have any objection to Peter's instructions, he plays his trump card in verse 16 where he quotes God Himself, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. That line is from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. God is the speaker. And this line gives us a foundation for Christian living. Why would I be concerned about my holiness, the holiness of the people around me, the holiness of my church? Because God himself is concerned with it. Be holy because I am holy. The problem for so many Christians is not the idea of holiness in our everyday lives, but rather it's our comfort level with selective holiness. We may follow strict moral codes in some parts of our lives, but then give ourselves sinful license in other areas. It can look like any number of things. Selective holiness might look like the person who uh, refuses to drink alcohol, but they are biting and critical with their words. It might be the person who is utterly committed to worship attendance, but they have an unrestrained temper. It might look like the person uh, who doesn't swear, but they are lost in pornography. Selective holiness does real damage, quantifiable damage. It, It does damage to our families. In our covenant commitments, we recite this line. I read it to you just a little bit ago. The line is this, we will bring up children under our care in the nurture and training of the Lord. How do we do that? Well, your home is the primary stage where our children are raised to know Jesus. So let them see Jesus in all your conduct. Be holy in all your conduct and point them to Jesus in your parenting. Let them learn of Jesus by the way you speak and act and let them learn of Jesus through the intentionality of your parenting and your grandparenting in their lives. Now look, home is the place where our hypocrisy is on full view. It's hard. We're not going to walk in holy perfection with the Lord in front of our families. We're going to fail and they're going to see it. But what they have to see in us in our failures is the character of Christ and a trust in His grace. And so from time to time, it's right that mom and dad, we would own our mistakes to our kids, that we would apologize We would trust them to let us be wrong. And then we would, in our own maturity and walk with Christ, pivot to a different way of speaking or acting. If you find that your tone is critical and harsh and loud, pay attention to your holiness in your conduct. It doesn't matter what they do, what the situation is. Our response must reflect Christ and not the irrationalities of our tempers and our anger. Our covenant commitment calls for holiness in our homes. It also calls for holiness in our marriages. It says this, it says, We will honor marriage as a sacred covenant between a man and a woman. 
And so we believe what the Bible teaches about marriage. We believe what the Christian church has always believed about marriage, that Christian marriage is a union between a man and a woman. But can I just tell you that getting the gender right is the lowest expression of holiness in marriage. Many people get the man and woman part right. Not as many people get the sacred covenant part right. The sacred covenant is not just in man and woman. The sacred covenant is in the commitments that are made and lived out in obedience to God. What happens in a marriage ceremony is not man and wife making commitments to each other that they really, really hope to keep. It is a commitment between man and woman and God as the supreme player. Their commitments first are to God. He has set the standards for what the sacred covenant of marriage looks like, how a husband loves his wife and how a wife loves her husband. And so uh, at the altar, man and woman make their commitments first to God, and then they make commitments to each other that are the very words of God, not their good intentions. It is the announcement from God, this is how you will love her and you will love him, and then day by day, striving for holiness to live out the sacred covenant. Without a commitment to personal holiness, husband and wife cannot enjoy the sacred covenant. Yes, it is man. Yes, it is woman. But holiness gives us the platform to enjoy the covenant blessings that God gives us in marriage. And so, Christian, your holiness matters to God. There's no area of our lives that is exempt from striving to be Christ-like. All our legalism and hypocrisy, that belongs to our old, ignorant way of living. But now that our hope is set totally on Christ, we strive for holiness in all of our conduct. It matters to God who you are as a single adult. And it matters to God that you keep your marriage vows. It matters to God how you handle your anger and your temper. It matters to God how you raise your kids and how you bless your grandkids. It matters to God how much alcohol you consume, what images you put before your eyes, your posture towards the poor, your treatment of the stranger, your work ethic. It matters to God that you would be holy as he is holy. So Peter has called us to holiness this morning in two large areas. First is holiness in our thinking. Second is holiness in our conduct. We are to strive to think and act like Christ. How do we do that? How do we make progress in our holiness? Well, this is a process that's both passive and active for Christian people. It's passive in that sometimes holiness comes just from the work of God and the gift of God, but then at other times we are commanded in Scripture to pursue holiness, just like here in 1 Peter chapter 1. And so, Where does that pursuing happen? How do you pursue holiness in your life? Again, I think our membership commitment is helpful here. We've recited this line, we will strive to maintain times of personal Bible reading and prayer. How do we strive for holiness? We will maintain times of personal Bible reading and prayer. Your time with God is the wellspring of your holiness. The writers of the book of Proverbs knew this. Listen to what the writer of Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 said. uh, 1 and 2. He said, My child, don't forget my teaching. 
But let your heart keep my commands, for they will bring you many days of full life and well-being. My child, my, my obedient child, don't forget that's your mind. Don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commands. That's your conduct. From the inside out, your holiness is crafted by communion with the Father. Now, several years ago, I, I read a book of prayers that has since become my favorite. I love books of prayers, collections of prayers. I love them for my devotional life. Uh, and this book in particular is my favorite. It's a small little book. It's called uh, A Diary of Private Prayer by a guy named John Bailey. And there is a prayer that I've carried with me, and I want to give to you as something simple you can use in your prayer life. I would challenge you, use it this week. In your pursuit of holiness, let this prayer be part of your prayer that gets you ready for your day. And the prayer is very simple, and it goes like this. The prayer says, speak in my words today, think in my thoughts, and work in all my deeds. Speak in my words today, think in my thoughts, and work in all my deeds. The word holiness isn't there, but that's a prayer for holiness. And you could expand that however you might wish. You might say, parent in my parenting, <laughs> spouse in my spousing, work in my working, be peace in my chaos, be holy and make me holy. Once upon a time, Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, teach us how to pray. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the meaning of hallow? It's holy. To make holy. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your heavenly Father's name is holy. You are the obedient child of your heavenly Father. You bear His name. and Therefore, be holy as He is holy. Let's pray together. So, Father, this day is still young, and we pray to You, speak in our words today. Think in our thoughts. Work in all our deeds seeing as how you have decided to bless the people of this world through servants as weak and fragile as us. Lord, use us to glorify your name this day through thoughts that reflect your holiness and a conduct that is rooted in holiness. Thank you for your grace and your patience to us. Though we fail often, you don't give up on us. Though our knees quake and our faith fractures in the face of so many hardships, serious hardships, still you're the God who's patient. I'm grateful for a salvation that is based on Christ's holiness and not the level of my own holiness. I'm grateful for his sinless perfection by which he is the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sin. Thank you for a salvation that is free, that is by grace through faith. And Lord, having 
experience that salvation. Help us to walk in your way. Give us minds that are set on Christ. Give us lives that reflect Christ. Father, help us to be holy as you are holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.